Thank you, Brother Paul. We really appreciate that. The trip he made mention of, 1999, is one that will stay in my mind, I trust, until I pass this world. It was such a wonderful trip over to the Bible land, and we had so many wonderful experiences. And Brother Paul would always sing a hymn, lead us in a hymn, wherever we're at. And he'd always choose one that uh, really uh, fit the situation. We went to a place called Petra. And our guide, I think, thought he had Brother Paul stumped. And what's he going to sing here? (laughs) Brother Paul, you might remember. I don't remember for sure. But anyway, it was great. And it just fit right in. It was unbelievable. Yes, sir. It was fantastic. This morning I'd like to speak to you from Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to read to you the first four verses. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged to set judgment in the earth, and the owl shall wait for his law. I'd like to speak to you primarily from the beginning of the fourth verse. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. Now, if I was to put my name in the place of the word he... It just wouldn't be a very accurate statement, would it? Because I'm familiar with failure. I have failed far more times than I've ever succeeded, I'm sure. If I was to put your name there, it just wouldn't really fit, would it? Well, I think you're honest with me this morning. You'd say the same thing that I just said. Man in general is a failure. It's hard to relate such a statement as this. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. The word discouraged means broken. It means crushed. It means the objective would not be reached. But the one in the consideration here, we're told, shall not fail, nor be discouraged. He shall not be crushed. He shall not be broken. I don't think we have to guess too hard this morning who's under consideration here. But if we go back and look at the first verse, we're introduced to this person. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. This is the Lord Jesus Christ that's under consideration. The writer says, Behold my servant. You know, in Isaiah 32, 1, it says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. There's a lot of difference between a king and a servant. We know that a king is not a servant. And a servant is not a king, except in this case. In this case, the servant indeed was the king. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't understand this. It was kind of a stumbling block to them. How can a man be a king and a servant at the same time? Well, then generally he cannot be. 
but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was. He was king of kings. He's a servant of all servants. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul tells us, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. But I want to look at the first part. He was in the form of a servant. He came as a servant. He came to serve. In Matthew 20 and 28, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That's what a servant does. He said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to be ministered. I came to minister. I, I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In the 13th chapter of John, we have it brought to our attention in vivid detail. That chapter begins by saying, Now, when the feast of the Passover had come, and Jesus knew the time that he should depart out of this world to be with the Father, he loved his own which were in the world, and he loved them unto the end. And then we find where the Lord laid aside his garment, he poured water in a basin, and he girded himself about with a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. Here was the Lord of lords and King of kings bowing down at the feet of men. Here was the creator of all mankind bowing down at the feet of his creation. Here is the Savior of sinners bowing down and washing the feet of sinners. The sinless one is washing the feet of sinners. The king is washing the feet of the subjects of the kingdom. It's an incredible sight. And I'm so thankful that as an example given to the church, that the church practices this today. When we have communion, we follow communion with the washing of the saints' feet. What a glorious, wonderful blessing it is to do that. To be at our brother and sister's feet and a sign of humility and a willingness to serve one another. Serving the Lord is by serving one another. And we serve one another by serving the Lord. He was the servant of all servants. Behold my servant whom I uphold. The Lord says, I uphold this, my servant. And then mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. This is the first time the word elect is used in the Bible. Certainly not the last. I've told you before, the word elect or elects or election is used 27 times in the scriptures. And here it has reference to the Son of God himself. The word elect simply means chosen. To choose, it means chosen. And the Son of God was chosen. He was elected by the Father to come in this world at an appointed time to do the will of the Heavenly Father. Behold, mine elect in the book of 1 Peter 2, in verse 4, he's presented to us as a living stone. But it says, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Could have said elected of God. Now notice, men disallowed him. Men wouldn't have him. Men rejected him, even though he was God's chosen one. He was the living stone. And without the living stone, we certainly wouldn't be lively stones. We're lively stones because the Lord Jesus Christ is the living stone. And two verses later, he says, for it is contained in the scripture. He's having reference to the 28th chapter of Isaiah. It is contained in the scripture. I will lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone 
elect, precious. So Peter is drawing from Isaiah 28. He refers to the Lord Jesus Christ again uh, as the elect. He was elected of, of God to come into this world, and he came. That word elect also has reference several different times in the book of Isaiah to the nation of Israel. They were a nation that God chose. They were a nation that God formed. They were a nation that God uh, elected as a, you know, a national election and dealt with them as his, as his people, as a nation. And then we have the word elect or election as it reference to the Lord's people, as reference to individuals that God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just a few examples here in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Paul writes, and he says, Knowing, brother, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not to you in word only, but came in power, the Holy Ghost, in much assurance. Knowing your election of God. Being chosen of God. How did he know that? Because he saw a favorable response when the gospel was preached. He could see it in their faces, perhaps in the tears that flowed down their cheeks. And I believe the gospel message should bring us to tears from time to time. You don't see that near as much as as we once did in years gone and past. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe, you know, we just got too much prosperity, too many things we lean on and depend on except for the Lord. But I'm telling you, if you've ever seen yourself as a poor, undone, unfit, unworthy sinner in this world, and you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ as a supreme being, as your Lord and Savior, your wonderful Redeemer, it ought to bring tears to your eyes because He loved the unlovable. We are by nature unlovable. That's just, that's just the fact of the matter, you see. We are indeed unloving. Knowing, brother beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not to you in word only. It came in the word, but not in word only. It came also in power. It came in the Holy Ghost. And it came in much assurance. See, the gospel gives me assurance. I love to hear the gospel preach. It gives me assurance that I'm a child of the king. It gives me assurance I belong to him. It gives me assurance that he's not just my God. It gives me the assurance he's also my heavenly father. I belong to him. He belongs to me. I'm in a, a family. I, I love my earthly family. I love my natural family. But I'm telling you, I'm part, if I'm not deceived in my heart, of a family of people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of this earth, and we'll all be together in glory some sweet day. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, Paul asked the question, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He answers that question and says, it's God that justifies. In other words, you cannot charge one of God's elect. And why is that? Because they're, uh, they're blood bought. The, the price <laughs> has been paid. And he obviously has reference to who he's talking about in Romans 8, 29 and 30. When he said, Moreover, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moving did predestinate, then he also called, and moving called, then he also justified, and justified, then he also glorified. Uh, you know, I never get tired of quoting that, never get tired of reading that, never get tired of preaching on it, never get tired of hearing it preached on. Uh, and if I ever get tired of it, I'm just going to be spiritually sick. That's going to be the problem with me. I'll just be spiritually sick, you see. So he says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He just told you that God's for you and his foreknowledge. God is for you in predestinating you into the adoption of children. God is for you in his call where he calls you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. He's for you in the work of his son when he justified you on the cross. And he's for you in the work of glorification, which has not yet happened, but will happen. It's so sure it's written here as if it already had happened. If God be for you, who can be against you? 
But God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Colossians 3 and 12. Paul writes to this church and says, Put on therefore as the elect of God. Not only we should rejoice that we, if we love the Lord, we are among the Lord's people, we've been elected of God, but we have a responsibility to live in a way that he would have us to live. Put on therefore as the elect of God, bowels of mercy, almost of kindness, uh, humility, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, the elect are to put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. By nature, we wore and wear grave clothes. We need to get them grave clothes off, brother. And we need to put the grace clothes on, the, the, the clothes of grace that God has, has clothed us with. That's why Isaiah spoke on more than one occasion. He said, for us to arise and put on thy beautiful garments, O Zion. Well, there's beautiful garments for God's people to wear here in this world. Behold my servant, that I uphold in mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. And we come down to the fourth verse, the first part of it. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. He's certainly not talking about me. He's certainly not talking about you. He's not, certainly not talking about the apostles. Certainly not talking about the 70. He's certainly not talking about men like David and Solomon and, and Samson and Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all wonderful men and great men, but I can guarantee when you stay their lives in the Bible, you're going to see from time to time, they failed. But the person under consideration right here, it says, he shall not fail. Now when I read that, I think, well, if he shall not fail, then if I can just determine from the Word of God what he came to do, then I can determine what he did. That makes sense, doesn't it? If he shall not fail, and I, and I can find what he came to do, I should be able to determine exactly what he did. Now there's some, a few Old Testament scriptures I want to take a look at first of all. We go to the book of Job, chapter 23, verses 12 and 13. And here Job says, I esteem his words more than my necessary food. Now, that's putting a high value on the word of God, isn't it? Uh, he didn't say just food. He says, my necessary food. There, food is necessary. But the Lord Jesus Christ taught, uh, you know, his disciples uh, that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Yeah, we got to have food to live, but we need to live also by the word of God and by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. He said, I esteem thy food more than my necessary food. He says, but God is one mind, who can turn him? Of one mind, who can turn him? He said, whatsoever his soul desireth, that shall he do. Whatsoever his soul desireth, he doeth. Now, notice the Lord has a desire. And whatever that desire is, Job says, he does it. <laughs> he doesn't do most of it, doesn't do some of it. He doesn't try the best he can and, and get a little of it done. <laughs> Once of his soul desireth, that shall he also do. Now, if we can search the scriptures and find out something about the desire of God, then, and then I think we can determine exactly, exactly what he did, because Isaiah the prophet says, he shall not fail, nor be discouraged. In connection with this, we come to Psalms 115, verse 3. He says, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. 
That's where our God's at. Our God's in the heavens, isn't he? Now I recognize he's Lord in heaven and Lord on this earth. And there's not anywhere on this earth that the Lord is not. He's, he's omnipresent. That's one of the great attributes of God. But he said, our God is in the heavens. Uh, that's where his throne is at. Isaiah 66, 1 says, the throne of God is in heaven. And he looks down upon this earth as his footstool. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He doesn't ask man for permission. He doesn't get permission from anybody. He's God. The word please indicates his sovereignty right here. Our, our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he hath pleased. Uh, I love that verse. And, and if you continue reading, you'll read the contrast between our God and the false gods of men. He speaks about the idols. He speaks about how they have eyes that can't see, and they have ears that can't hear, and a mouth that can't speak, and hands that can't handle, and feet that can't walk. And so they have to carry their idols around with them. And that's pathetic. Isn't that sad? <laughs> uh, when they go from one place to the other, uh, you know, I can just see them going from point A to point B and all of a sudden says, hey, we, we forgot our gods. We got to go back and get our gods. Isn't that p- pitiful? So we don't believe that we have to carry our God. We believe our God carries us. Uh, I don't know how we ever get along in life without God carrying us from point A to point B and then on down the line. We need God carrying us in his wonderful providence, carrying us with his everlasting arms, you see. We got a God who has eyes that do see. He said, I will guide thee with mine eye. The eyes of God in several places have reference to his omnipresence and his omniscience. Time we read where it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth, the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those who whose trust is in him, whose heart is perfect toward him. The eyes of the Lord do what? They run to and fro throughout the whole. There's no place on this earth. Well, what are God's little children at? That the eyes of God do not see him and know exactly what he stands in need of, you see. They run to and fro. So we have a God who's omnipresent, a God who's omniscient. We have a God who's in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he has pleased in contrast to these false gods who can't do anything. And the main difference between our God and those gods is our God has life. He's life personified. It's where all life comes from. And those gods are totally lifeless. Now, if something's lifeless, how are you going to get a response out of it? It is so sad to see people make gods uh, throughout, uh, ever since the world was created, uh, they made a God out of anything and everything that God's ever created. There's made a God out of the sun, the moon, the stars, and mountains, and trees, and grass, and water, and animals of all kinds. They've made gods out of These gods will never help you. Some people made a God out of money. It will never help you when you need the kind of help I'm talking about. Make gods out of their cells. Make God, gods out of entertainment. Make gods out of sports. Make God out of recreation. We got all kind of idols and gods around us today. But I'm telling you, when you really need help, uh, you're going to be mighty disappointed. You're going to be mighty disappointed. Our God is in the heaven. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. If that's true and he cannot fail nor become discouraged, I'm just satisfied. Whatever he hath pleased, he's going to get it done. Take a look at the... A statement, one of the greatest statements in the Bible, in my opinion, is found in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. It came from the mouth of a heathen king. Of all places, (laughs) it came from the mouth of a heathen king. This king was lifted up with pride to the point where God just dismissed him from his throne. He'd had a vision, and Daniel told him ahead of time what the vision was all about, and he disregarded it. He walked out one time, I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he walked out one time and looked on his kingdom, 
He had a mighty kingdom. He took a look at that kingdom and he began to praise himself. He began to use the word I, you know, just one letter word, I. That, that one letter, it gets a lot of trouble. You know, it's the middle, word, uh, it's the middle letter and the word sin, isn't it? S-I-N, I. Sure is. And so he says, look, look at my mighty kingdom, what I've put together, you know. And Daniel already told him that God, you know, sets up and takes down kingdoms. He's the sovereign God and ruler of all the universe. And before these words got out of his mouth, very good, he was driven from his throne right into the field where he began to graze grass like the oxen of the field. And his bird, uh, his nails grew like uh, bird claws. His, uh, his hair grew like bird feathers. What a mess. What, a, what an atrocious sight that had to have been. And that's where he remained for a time, for a period of time. And then one day the Bible says his understanding returned to him. What a blessing it is to have your understanding return to him. I've seen a lot of people who lost their understanding and sometimes it never does return. But somebody's lost their understanding of some of the things of life that are so important and to have their understanding return like the prodigal son did. You know, the prodigal son thought within himself. When he got down to rock bottom, he thought within himself. Now this king... When his understanding returned, here's what he said. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. That puts us right where we belong, doesn't it? All the inhabitants of this earth, that's me, that's you, that's everybody, no exceptions. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Our reputation is we're nothing, yea, less than nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. But God, but God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or saith unto him, what doest thou? Boy, I'm telling you, there's a lot of theology in that statement. Man's depravity, God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, and he works his will, whether it's among the army of heaven. I believe that has reference to the angels themselves. And God's used that army not to defend heaven from something to come in, because I guarantee you nothing in this world is going to enter in there. But he's used that army from time to time in his judgment upon different nations, upon the face of this earth, even among his own people at time, he sent his angels down here to carry out his judgment. But God will work his will among the army of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, which means none can stop him or hinder him from doing it. Or even saying to him, what doest thou? Every once in a while you hear somebody uh, make a statement of what they're going to ask God when they get to heaven. They're going to be mighty disappointed. <laughs> they're not going to be asking God any questions in heaven like the questions they're uh, trying to ask right here on this earth. I'll tell you that now. Uh, when they get to heaven, they'll just be happy to be there. But anyway, none can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him. Nobody can hinder him. Or even say to him, what doest thou? Because he's the sovereign God of the universe. He's sovereign in everything that he does. What a tremendous and powerful statement this is. It came to the lips of that king. But when he acknowledged that, we find the Lord restored him back to his former position. See, the Lord taught us the way up is down, the way down is up. He that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that abased himself shall be exalted. This man was exalted, and God brought him down and abased him. And he saw himself finally of what he was, nothing apart from God, and God restored him back to his former, former position. In the book of Isaiah 46 and verse 9, he says, declaring, he said, I am God, there is none else. I am God, who shall you compare me? The, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time, the things which are not yet done. Notice it's I-N-G, declaring the things 
declaring the end from the beginning. Only God can do that. Only God can see the future and know the future. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God has a counsel. He has a pleasure. He says, doing all my counsel. In Psalms 33 and verse 11, it says, the counsel of the Lord shall stand forever. That's how long it's going to stand. Whatever God's counsel is, whatever's under consideration, it's going to stand forever. He says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things which are not yet done, and showing how things were fulfilled that God spoke about and how he prophesied about them. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God has a pleasure and God has a counsel. Over here in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17, the writer says concerning God, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Now he's going to show somebody something, but just notice who he shows it. It's the heirs of promise that's under consideration right here. That's you. God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, which means the unchangeableness of God. The immutability of God. Aren't you glad God doesn't change? He doesn't change. His purpose doesn't change. His counsel doesn't change. His pleasure doesn't change. He's just the omnipotent God today as he's always been. He's not weaker. He hasn't grown weaker with age. I mean, I can tell you as, you, as you progress in age, you get a little weaker. I mean, I can remember when I was very young. Then I can remember when I was young. And now I'm, I can remember when I'm not so young. Still hadn't used the word old. But anyway, I can remember when I'm not so young. And things change along the way. You lose your strength. You lose a lot of things. Go to Ecclesiastes, the last chapter, and read it, and you'll find a graphic description of everything that takes place when you get a little older in life. Now, I'm told it's accurate. <laughs> Declaring the end from the beginning. My counsel shall stand. I'll do all my pleasure. Ephesians 1.11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Part of God's counsel is the fact that you have an inheritance awaiting you in glory land. You have a, an inheritance awaiting you in a place called heaven. And when you draw your last breath, you enter into that. You enter into that place where you begin to enjoy the wonderful inheritance that God has reserved in heaven for you, you see. He said, according to the counsel of his own will. It's according to God's will here. Ephesians 1.5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's, here's the pleasure of God. It's God's pleasure. It was God's pleasure to predestinate you unto the adoption of children. Aren't you glad that God took you out of Adam's family and put you in his family? Have you compared those two families lately? Have you, do you see a contrast between Adam's family and the family of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I, I tell you, I'm so thankful God reached over here and took me out of this one and put me over here in that one. It was all according to the good pleasure of his will. It wasn't my will, it was God's will. To, he says, when God willing more abundantly showing the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie and God cannot change. He said we might lay hold upon that hope which is laid out before us, which is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I tell you, we live in troubled seas here in this world, don't we? We live in stormy weather every single day. Somebody says, how's the weather? It depends on what kind of weather you're talking about. 
Well, today we got a beautiful, sunshiny day. I don't believe there's any storms uh, uh, coming on the horizon, according to weatherman. We, this should hold forth throughout the day. But I know in a few days, maybe even tomorrow, oh, we might have some storms. But I'm telling you, when it comes to the weather of life, my friends, hardly a day goes by that I don't have to encounter a storm. I can encounter a storm at any time. Never know when the phone rings, what, who's going to be on the other end of it and what kind of news he got to tell you. It's not always good. So we have some stormy seas that we have to navigate from time to time. But I'm telling you, God who cannot change and God who cannot lie. He's given us a hope within our hearts. It's like an anchor of the soul, an anchor for a ship. It stabilizes a ship. It holds a ship in place. Uh, you know, if it wants to be in a certain place, the anchor goes down, it holds in that place. And especially important in times of storms, so they'll get uh, off their course in one thing and another. And that hope we have in our hearts, just like that anchor, my friends, of a ship. It's an anchor of the soul, and it's sure, and it's steadfast. He shall not fail. Neither shall he be discouraged. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. Whatsoever his soul desireth, that shall he also do. He's declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time, the things which are not yet done, saying, My castle shall stand to all my pleasure, called a Ravensburg from the east. A man that executes my counsel from a far country, he says, I have spoken it, I will see it come to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. I love that kind of language, don't you? If I was using that language to describe some man, you'd say, My brother Lawrence, you think too high of that man, and you'd be right. If I say that about myself, somebody say, well, I think you think too much of yourself. I say, you're exactly right. Uh, that's not talking about me. It's not talking about any man upon the face of the earth. It's talking about Almighty God. He has purposed it. He will do it. He has spoken it, and he will bring it to pass. Now, if that is the case, and it is the case, I've just told you it's the case. <laughs> and you read Isaiah 42, for he shall not fail nor be discouraged, then we can be encouraged. So let's look over in the New Testament, see if we can find what he came to do. We don't have to look any further than Matthew 121. I mean, you start reading the New Testament, I mean, in about uh, two minutes' time, you've already found something. The angel comes to Joseph to reassure him that Mary has not betrayed him. He knew she was a child. He knew they had not been together. He was going to put her away in a respectful way as he possibly could. He was going to do that. But the angel came to him and says, Fear not, Joseph, which that is conceived of Mary's of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Three wonderful shalls. She shall bring forth a son. Did she? Did, did, she, did that fail? Isaiah says, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Did that fail? No, it did not. She brought forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Did, did that happen or did it not happen? Well, it happened, didn't it? God named his own son and told Joseph and Mary to call him Jesus, which means Savior. That took place, that happened. And then the third part, you won't have much trouble getting people to agree with you on the first shall and the second shall, but boy, when it comes to the third shall, we got some problems. Well, some people do, I don't. He shall save his people from their sins. That's why he came to work, to save his people from their sins. If he shall not fail nor be discouraged, I'm just going to joyfully conclude he did it. <laughs> he saved his people from their sins. His, his people were sinners. They need to be saved from their sins. And only one could do that. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't come to try to do it. Didn't come to make an opportunity for it to be done. He just simply came to do it. He was the only one that could do it, you see. 
Paul writes in similar language in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Notice he says that this is a saying of faith right here. This is a faithful saying. And it's worthy to be accepted by all. It's worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul says that's why he came. Paul says he came to save sinners. The angel says he came to save his people from their sins. Isaiah says she shall not fail nor be discouraged. How can you read Isaiah 42, 4 and think anything else when you read these verses over here in the New Testament? And it's, yeah, it's, it's what we stand for boldly, but I trust uh, in humility about this great gospel truth, my friends, that God's got a people, they stood in need of being saved, and they couldn't save themselves, they couldn't cross their T's and dot their I's, couldn't get the work done, so God sent his son. God sent his son in this world to get the job done. God sent his son in this world. He's mighty elect. He, that's what Isaiah 42, 1 says, mighty elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Now I'm telling you, God delighted in his son. When Jesus Christ is baptized with John the Baptist in the River Jordan, we find heaven opens up. And anytime you read where heaven opens up, my friends, put your seatbelt on because something's good's coming down the road. All right, heaven opened up. And a voice rang out from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. He was well pleased with his son. It's interesting to me when uh, parents sometimes talk about the children. How sometimes it's our children, sometimes it's my child, sometimes it's your child. All depends on what's happening. If he comes home with straight A's, he's my son. I want you to come and look what my son. I want you to look what my son over here. But if you come home with an F, he's, I want you to see what your son done or didn't do this last grading period. I don't have to guess my son and your son when they, I, I think it takes two to make this thing work. And so it's our son, our daughter, our child, whatever you see. So the father looked down from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, I'll acknowledge him. Uh, men disallowed him, but he's chosen of me and he's precious my sight. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. On the mountain of transfiguration, when the apostle Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here and let's build three tabernacles. We'll be one for the Lord, we'll be one for Moses, one for Elijah. No, I don't think we're going to do that. The Lord is not going to share equal building with anybody. He's a jealous God. Don't give his glory to anybody else. So a voice rang out from heaven and he said uh, unto Peter, you know, when Peter made that statement, he says, um, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. You're here to listen, not to talk. <laughs> you know, that'd be uh, wonderful if we could learn that lesson in a lot of aspects of life, wouldn't it? Sometimes, you know, some people just think a meeting is not a good meeting if they don't have a chance to talk and that just ruins it right there. Sometimes you just need to listen. You don't need to talk. James says we're to be swift to hear and uh, slow to wrath and slow to speak. But by nature, we're right the opposite. We're quick to wrath, quick to speak, and slow to hear, you see. You need to reverse that or it's going to get you in a lot of trouble in life. <laughs> it's going to get you in a lot of trouble. So he says this is a, a worthy saying. It's worthy of all acceptation. Faithful saying. Christ came to the world to save sinners who I am chief. In the book of John 4, 34, the Lord Jesus Christ said, My meat to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. There was a work laid out for the Lord Jesus Christ. His meat, his desire, his joy was to do the will of the Father and, and to finish that work. So to me, the question comes, did he actually do it? Well, I, I believe he did. In John chapter 17, we find a high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find where Christ is praying to the Heavenly Father. 
and lifted his eyes and said, Father, time has come to glorify thy son that he might also glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Isaiah says he should not fail nor be discouraged. So is that true? The Savior says, you give me power over all flesh. I should do what? Give eternal life to as many as thou hast given unto him. That's exactly how many will have eternal life. All whom the Father gave to the Son. Then he comes to verse 4 and says, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. John 19 and 30. The Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross. He spoke three profound words. He says, it is finished. One of, the, one of the many memories I have, Brother Julian Cunningham, I know I, I mentioned this in times past, but one day the phone rang years ago and he was, he was uh, participating in a prayer breakfast up there in Plant City. He says, we've been going through the Gospel of John and we've reached a certain point. I was wondering if you could come up here and, and, and tell us about it. And what if you come up here and, and speak on it? And I said, well, I'll do the best I can to, to where you at, you know. He said, we're at John 1930. I said, wow, <laughs> yes, I'll be there as quick as I can get there. John 19, 30, Jesus said, it is finished. It, was he talking about the crucifixion? No, he was not. Was he talking about the end of his life? No, he was not. Yes, the crucifixion had taken place. He's about to uh, bow his head and give up the ghost. That's not what he had in consideration. He said, it is finished. That word finished has an ED in the end of it. It is finished. Isaiah says, he shall not fail, nor shall he become discouraged. So I remember going up there that Wednesday morning and sitting there around, the, around that table, about a dozen, 15 men there of various flavors of, of belief, one thing and another. And so after they made a few announcements, they turned it over to me. And for about uh, 30 minutes, we had a wonderful time. For about 30 minutes, I was blessed of God to expound upon John 19, 30. And at least for one time in their life, they understood what the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ really meant. Whatever the work was, Jesus said, it's finished. He came to save his people from their sins. It was finished. He came to save sinners. It was finished. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that was under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God sent his Son to redeem. Well, Isaiah says he shall not fail. Don't be discouraged. So I'm going to conclude that he paid the redemption price. I'm going to conclude he actually redeemed his people. According to Ephesians 1, 7, he did, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. The God that I hear preached so oftentimes in this world comes to, to me, it comes across as a failing God. That God would like to do this, and God wants to do that, but his hands are tied because men don't cooperate. He's not getting enough support from mankind here upon the face of this earth. That's like one of those gods in uh, Psalms 115 I was talking to you about a while ago. It's not about the one in 15 verse 3, our God's in the heavens, he's done whatsoever he hath pleased. It's not about that God. I want God's people to understand what the Bible has to say about the God of Scripture and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ of Scripture. Christ came to the will of the Heavenly Father, and I believe he got the will taken care of. He says he shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. When it comes to redemption, he redeemed them. I mentioned this early in uh, Matthew 20, 28. But the Lord said, uh, he said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he gave my life a ransom for many. And that word ransom there simply means the payment to be made. 
a payment to be made, a redeeming, the price of redemption. To give my life a ransom, a price of redemption for those that the Father gave unto me. Isaiah says, he shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. If you understand that verse, and I don't know how you could not, that he shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged, then I don't know how you could reach any conclusion anything else. When you read over here what Jesus came to do, they actually got it done. Remember the word discouraged means broken or crushed. Does that mean the Lord Jesus Christ was happy every single day? No, it does not. When you read the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's times that he wept. Uh, he wept at the grave of Lazarus for a dear friend that died, but he also wept over the city of Jerusalem. He saw a city here that was chosen of God in the Old Testament day, a place where it had the temple, where the true worship of God took place, where the sacrifices and one thing and another were brought there according to God's word. And yet the people of that day did not receive him. They rejected him. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, uh, he says, how awful I'd have gathered this. A hen gathered chickens under her wings and you would not. And Jesus wept over that. He was sorrowful in heart because of that. He was opposed every single day. He was opposed at every turn. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders all opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. He had opposition, my friends, every single day they lived and throw in the devil himself. The world and the devil, just like we have today. The world, the devil, and our human nature. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had a sinless nature. He didn't have that enemy, but he had the enemy of the devil, had the enemy of Satan. He had the enemy of this world here in which we live that he opposed every single day of his life here. But the Bible says he shall not be discouraged. He shall not be broken. He shall not be crushed. What other man could have traveled this pathway without being broken and crushed? No one. Isaiah said he set his face like a flint headed toward Jerusalem. The time he was born, his time had been appointed 33 and a half years later that he'd hang upon a cross and he'd lay his life down. He'd make an offering and sacrifice to the Father. And Isaiah tells me, he shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. Did he fail in the offering? He did not. Did he fail in the sacrifice? He did not. Did he, did he come there to Calvary and not have the means, my friends, to pay the ransom price? Oh, he did not. I'm telling you, he paid the price full. The writer's got it right. You know, Jesus paid the price indeed. He, he loved you to such an extent. His son came here to carry out the will of the Father, and that was to obtain eternal life and save his people from their sin. He shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. It is finished. As I've mentioned in times past, the Lord says something's finished. It's a lot different when I say I finished something. I don't tell you how many times I've finished mowing the grass and I'm already dreading about five weeks from now when I've got to get back at it again. I don't understand if I got it finished from last year why I've got to do it again. <laughs> but I will. I'm going to have to get out and mow it again. Uh, my wife finishes uh, washing clothes. You know, and closes the door, only to open back up uh, uh, the next day and get the washing machine going again. Uh, she finished it yesterday, but there it is, be done all over again. Uh, just one thing after another, my friends, when God, when men finish things, it just lasts temporarily. But when Jesus Christ finished it, I'm telling you, it's been sailed, uh, sealed and settled eternally. Eternally. And what about all the other things that Jesus did? What about all the miracles he performed? I want to encourage you. I'd like for you to start in Matthew 1, go to the end of the 21st uh, uh, chapter of the book of John, and I want you to list and, and write down every single time where you see where Jesus Christ failed to do anything. You're going to bring me a blank sheet of paper. 
That's what you're going to do. A blank sheet of paper. I want you to find me one time he purposed to heal uh, the blind and didn't heal the blind. Find me one time. Find me one time when they brought the deaf to him who couldn't hear that Jesus Christ failed to give his hearing to him. Find me one time where they brought a leper to him that he did not cleanse. Find me one time where they brought somebody lame that couldn't walk and he didn't leave there walking. I love the story where the four men brought their friend to the house where Jesus was. And the house was full up, didn't have any seats available. I wish I could find that problem in the church today where people would show up and there wouldn't be a seat available. Wouldn't that be a wonderful problem? Uh, somebody said, we got to run down here to the funeral home, grab some chairs. That's what people used to do. <laughs> you know, and set them all out. That'd be a nice problem to have. But I'm telling you, there was no seat for anybody in the house. But they didn't stop the guy on top of the house, tore it all the roof up, let him down in the midst down there. And the first thing the Lord said to him when he saw their faith was, thou, thou, thy faith has saved thee, thy sins been forgiven thee, take up thy bed and walk. And the man got on his bed. He came there on his bed. He left there the bed on him. He left there uh, in a lot better shape. And I, I'm going to tell you, uh, the, church means, the church means everything to me. The church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ means everything to me. When I go to the house of God, I don't think I can tell you a single time I ever went to the house of God, and I've been many times in my lifetime. Ever since I was born in this world, I was born the first part of the week, and my mother had me in the house of God in her lap that following Sunday. I probably hadn't missed this many in my entire lifetime of, you know, of a few years I've lived here. I go to church because I want to go to church. I go to church because I love the church. I go to church to be encouraged. And I'm going to tell you, every time I've ever been to the house of God, when I left, I felt better than I did when I got there. Yeah, I hope you already feel better than you did when you got here. Uh, I feel a lot better. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm feeling great. <laughs> I was feeling kind of down and out and tired and weary and all that kind of stuff, but God has given me the, the strength I need today. I mean, I, I feel like I could uh, uh, play a game of pickleball, Brother Glenn. I mean, I am ready to roll, okay? I'm telling you, I got, I'm already feeling much better than I was when I got here. And that's the way it is. When the God is present, His Spirit is there and lifts you up and encourages you and strengthens you and builds you up in the most holy faith, you ought to leave this house, my friend, skipping along the way. He shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. We have three instances where he raised somebody from the dead. Did he try to raise them from the dead? No, he did not. He raised them from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the widow woman's son from the dead. He didn't fail in that. He didn't find an impossible task. He just simply did it. The prophet said he should not fail. He should not be broken. He should not be crushed. He made it all the way to Calvary. They opposed him at every turn, trying to put a stumbling block before him every single day. And when they finally crucified him, they thought they had him. I'm telling you, that was why he came to the world in the very beginning, was to lay down his life and be crucified. He didn't fail. He wasn't discouraged. He wasn't crushed. He wasn't broken. He got it done. I just want you to remember this verse if you don't remember anything else. If anybody asks you today what I preached on and you don't tell them the right answer, I'm just going to be disappointed. So I'm going to tell you one more time. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged.